and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students, and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On October 5th, 2021, we talked with Dr. Lisa Bauer, a postdoc in the Van Rail Lab at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam. Lisa obtained her master's in microbiology and molecular immunology and her PhD identifying and characterizing therapeutics for enteroviruses. She is currently using airway organoids and neurons differentiated from pluripotent stem cells to investigate how infection with respiratory viruses, such as influenza A virus and SARS-CoV-2 affects the central nervous system, both acutely and long-term due to post-infectious sequelae. So nice to talk with you today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, so first I want to thank you to give me the opportunity to, to talk with you. And I think it's a very nice opportunity for young scientists on, on this platform to also see behind the curtain what, who we are and what we're doing. So my name is Lisa Bauer, and I'm a postdoc in the group of Debbie von Riel at Erasmus Medical Center currently. And I come originally from Austria, from a very small little town where we are normally around under the week, let's say, um, 500 inhabitants and on the weekend we are around 1000 so we are kind of a hotspot for the viennese people to to come and have a little bit acquire the time and escape a little bit the, the the big city and i was very fortunate that i could kind of escape let's say my little hometown and go to the big city and and study there and get my education and also go to school there so that was um very adventurous already. <laughs> and how did you first become interested in science? Like, sort of what got you interested in it? So in science, um, I always wanted to understand when I saw, so my mom has on, on her left arm, she has a, a, a little scar, which back then I didn't know what it is. And I always asked my mom, mom, why do you have that? And my dad, but I don't have that. And my mom was saying, oh yeah, that's about against pox viruses. And I'm like, what is that? I, I don't understand. Can you explain me? But it took a very, very long time until people actually really could explain me what a virus is, like this whole big concept. And I think then my curiosity from there just grew more and more. And also already in, in primary school, I was more interested in learning about, as we call it in, in, in also like children's diseases, then, for example, mathematics or, or German or something like this. So I always wanted to know a lot about that. And yeah, and already from, from very on, I just wanted to know why we can get vaccines. What are they, they helping against? And yeah, so and that never stopped until today. Okay. And then can you tell us a little bit about sort of the path that you took in your education? So, you know, how you got to where you were in sort of undergrad and then into your PhD and now into your postdoc. So um, I did, as I mentioned before, my bachelor and my master's studies at the University of Vienna. And before this, in 2006, I finished my A-levels. And the main uh, 
topic of my A-levels actually doesn't matter if it was biology, English or whatever. It was about pandemics because back then, so it was in 2006, there was the wave of SARS-1 and also um, bird flu, how we call it in German, so avian influenza. And I just took the opportunity um, to, to expand there a little bit my knowledge. And then I was um, talking with people in my school and teachers with what is the right path for me because I really wanted to study viruses. And then um, one of the teachers came to me and said, oh yeah, then you have to study pharmacy. So I started to study pharmacy in, in the, at the University of Vienna. But after a year, I figured out that that's not what I'm interested in. And then I, I again talked with other people and I said, yeah, why don't you try chemistry? So I studied a year of chemistry. I really liked it. But again, there were no viruses until I figured out that we have a side branch, which was microbiology, which was embedded in the whole uh, biology. And that's then I followed during my bachelor's. And there we had, I, I still can remember, it was um, um, the microbiology course number two. And then we had this professor coming in, Timothy Skern. And he was like, okay, what kind of diseases do you people know? And we were like, yeah, polio, pox viruses. And he was the first one who really brought to me the concept of viruses. And then I knew, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so I did then also my bachelor internship in his lab. And that was very, so he's actually a structural biologist focusing on, on viral proteins, especially from the family of Picornoviridae. And from there on, I then went on to do my master's, which was uh, molecular microbiology and immune biology. And I did my master's internship at the Center of Molecular Medicine in, let's say, the, the only lab I could find in Austria, in Vienna, which was working on host uh, virus path, um, yeah, virus-host interaction. And there I worked mainly on, on more in the interfield between innate immunity, epigenetics and virology. And then I was looking for PhD positions and it was not the easiest tasks, let's put it like this. And so for one year then while looking for PhD positions, I was working in the plant molecular pathology lab. So I worked with bacteria and with fungi infecting maize plants. And it was also very fascinating. And then I got their PhD position offered and I declined because it was not about viruses. I told him, so if you could find a virus for maize plants, I would be happy to stay. And then luckily I found a PhD position in a Marie Curie network. So it's funded from, from the European Union. It's a very big network. So we were in total 15 PhD students from different kinds of fields. So from virology, medicinal chemistry, and more from, from the technical background even. And our main goal was um, to produce antivirals against mostly plus strand RNA viruses, but also we had one project running on, on, on RSV. Yeah, and then I, I finished my PhD and I went very smoothly on to my postdoc, also in the Netherlands. So I did my PhD in Utrecht and then I moved from Utrecht to the Erasmus Medical Center and I work now on, on influenza and enterovirus T68. And we want to kind of to understand how respiratory viruses can invade the central nervous system. And of course, nowadays also with SARS-CoV-2. Okay, wow. Um, and 
Can you tell us a little bit about, so I guess in your postdoc, what were you looking for when you were looking for a postdoc lab? So sort of what defines a good postdoc lab? There are two things. I heard from a lot of people that if you want to really succeed in science, you should go to a very big lab, a very well-known lab. And I think I did exactly the opposite. So I came from a very well-established Picorna virology lab. And Frank van Kuppelfeld, I think everyone who was working with Picorna viruses, everyone knows him. But for me, I wanted a bit more, I wanted to completely switch gears to learn first, to broaden my uh, horizon. But I also wanted to help uh, a young lab to set up a new expertise with maybe an expertise I have. So this was one reason. And the other reason, um, so far, I also had during my whole career, supervisors were only males. And I think as a female scientist, you also should see on, the, on how the world looks from a female perspective, which is, I think, for males, not always completely clear. And that was my second point especially also the connection during the interview what I had with, with my boss now, with Debbie, I think that made it for me clear, besides, of course, the research project, that this is a very welcoming and friendly environment where we work hard, but we also party hard <laughs> kind of thing. So that was, for me, very important. Great, great. So why don't you tell us then a little bit about the work that you're doing now um, maybe talking a little bit about some of the techniques that you're using, some of the big questions that you're trying to answer, uh, things like that. So I, I came to the lab. So Debbie is very well known in the field of influenza A viruses, which is completely different to my little small, not envelope coronaviruses. And she needed someone who to help her set up a lot of molecular virology techniques, let's put it like this for enteroviruses, so titrations, how we can, can we grow the virus? Um, can we make infectious clones and stuff like that? And so I helped a lot with that, but my main focus now is on influenza. And especially we want to understand how these viruses in general, respiratory viruses, how they can go systemic. So why do we find, for example, also now with SARS-CoV-2, why do we find them in the liver, in the heart, in the brain? So we are specialized, especially in the brain. And so we use a couple of, of, of different techniques. So one technique is what we have is that we use um, airways organoids, which we then culture um, from 3D, we culture them then on 2D, so that you have a very nice pseudostratified layer of epithelial cells. And to understand, um, so if you think, especially for flu, if you have a pneumonia, you need to go to the alveolus, right? So you have a very tight connection from the epithelial cells to the endothelial cells. So I was very busy now setting up a model on the transwell with these organoids where you have on the apical side, the epithelial or the organoid derived epithelial cells. And on the basolateral side, um, lung macrovascular endothelial cells. And we want to, to understand how this interaction between epithelial cells and endothelial cells actually can form, for example, cytokine storms and stuff like this, and what actually triggers the endothelial cells. So this is one part of my research line. 
And the other part of my research line is that we're using a lot um, IPS differentiation. So we have uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and we can differentiate them in different uh, neuron lineages. Let's put it like this. So we have now established in the lab very nicely. We can make um, cortical neurons and where we supplement these cortical neurons with our own differentiated astrocytes. And there in, in combination in these co-cultures, the neurons are actually very nicely um, active and can fire in their synapses. And we want to understand a little bit, the, a little bit more the electrophysiology of, of these neurons, especially what happens then with virus infections and then maybe even compare. So now we are focusing more on SARS-CoV-2 and, and flu, but also maybe later on compare this with, with real neurotropic viruses like for example, Zika or, or West Nile, I think that would be very nice. And since we're also working on enterovirus T68, we now establish differentiations of, of motor neurons, which works uh, very nicely. And then we want to study a little bit the pathogenesis of enterovirus T68 in these uh, motor neurons a bit more in detail and also looking more behind the electrophysiology. So I think overall with, with all of this, the aim is so what I'm really interested in is to understand how, so let, let, let's start from, uh, from SARS and flu. So we know for both viruses that it can cause during the acute time of infection, quite severe, sometimes neurological complications, but also after the acute phase and the post-acute phase and post-infection, a lot of neurological sequelae happen. And I think it's absolutely not understood um, how this works. And I think that's very, very important to, to understand how this works. So we're now driving a bit more into this direction and to more understand on a broader perspective how this actually happens. Right. And can you talk a little bit about, so there are viruses that are sort of like uh, bonafide, you know, viruses that are known to invade the CNS, you know, things like West Nile, even though obviously it's, it's a rare um, sequelae in a way, but still they, they are done, you know, bona fide neurotropic viruses in the CNS itself. And then as you were alluding to earlier, there's viruses like flu or potentially SARS, where it's still not clear that they're really infecting the brain per se, or at least um, neurons in the brain, but they're having these effects in the brain. So can you kind of talk a little bit about what might be the differences between the viruses that would actually set them up like that? So for example, with, with these real neurotropic viruses, I think what you see already just in, in, in the vitro data is that these viruses replicate very efficiently. So they can replicate in astrocytes, um, in neurons. I'm not sure that, that I think so far there's not too much data out there about microglia because they're quite, um, challenging to get into culture. But these viruses replicate very efficiently and they can spread throughout the brain. And on the other hand, you have um, SARS-CoV-2 and also influenza A viruses, where we see in our in vitro cultures that these viruses can infect very good neurons. So, I mean, SARS, not that good. So if, for example, if you, if you infect our cultures with SARS, we every now and then very scarcely we will see one infected cell. If you compare this, for example, to, to influenza 
A viruses, especially um, H1N1, we see if we in, in infect these cultures, we see almost 90% of the neurons infected. But both viruses, they cannot replicate efficiently, so they never produce any progeny viruses. But still, um, what we see is that at least with SARS-CoV-2, we showed um, recently in a paper that even though you have very rare infection in the skull cultures, it still triggers a mild immune response, which may be, well, it's uh, only a little piece of, of, of the whole answer, but maybe that also explains why we see this acute and post-acute neurological sequelae that you just have an induction of neuroinflammation by the presence of the virus, which not necessarily needs to be efficient replication in, in the case of SARS-CoV-2. Because, for example, we also have the influenza A virus, the highly pathogenic H5N1, and we see that this virus replicates to very high titers in our in vitro cultures. And also in ferret brains, for example, it just spreads throughout the brain and induces massive amounts of inflammation. So, but to really understand this, we're, I think, in, in, in the very first beginning on what is really going on there. Inefficient replication, for, or at least the presence of the virus in the neurons, for sure leads to something. Right. But, yeah, it's... it's we, there's a lot of we, we can speculate a lot what will happen so i think one also one contributor to all of these cranial nerves which i think people underestimate always a little bit mm. because if we think of for example these viruses very replicate very well in in the nasal epithelium and the olfactory epithelium right and this epithelium in in our nose is just innervated by a lot of different nerves for example we have the olfactory nerve right and we have uh, the trigeminal nerve. And for example, for flu, we see infection of the trigeminal nerve in animal models, mm -hmm. as well as the olfactory nerve. So I think, especially with the olfactory nerve, that ha also has been shown for, for SARS-CoV-2 as a potential entry route um, for these viruses, which I think is often a little bit neglected because people always think, oh yeah, you need to get either through varemia, and I mean, us with SARS-CoV-2 and us with flu, even though it's a little bit um, underrepresented, I think there's actually quite some substantial varemia, which also contributes. So there's a lot of factors, but definitely cranial nerve play a very important role to distribute these viruses to, to the CNS. Right, right. Um... Great. And then um, I guess for when you're using all these organoid cultures, so how do you look at viral infection and how do you look at um, the, the, the changes that are occurring? Are you using a lot of sort of like, um, I don't know, epifluorescence, you know, like sort of image-based analysis, or are you doing more things like single cell or RNA-seq or QRT-PCR? How are you actually looking at the, the virus and the host? Yeah, um, for viruses, so we mostly use titrations, of course, or in, in for SARS-CoV-2 also plaque assays, which I like a lot. I think it's a very nice technique, a plaque assay. It's fantastic. And to evaluate more the, the host side, let's put it like this, we use a lot of imaging. And yeah, as you said, also sing not yet single cell RNA sequencing because it's, it's very expensive and 
yeah, I always need to find a little bit of funding for that. But bulk RNA sequencing, we do a lot, and then qPCRs. And we also have uh, a very, especially for for our cytokine interferon expressions, they are very nice tools, which is called uh, Legendplex. It's a multiplex bead assay where you can measure up to, I think, 13 or 15 cytokines at once. It's a fax-based assay, and that works actually very good in our hands. Right, right. Cool. And then you already get a very profound profile of what is happening um, right. during the infection. Right. So um, what do you think about sort of for your future? Where do you see yourself going in the next couple of years? I would love to go back to Austria, to Vienna, because I think also during this pandemic that there's almost no virology research, or at least it's not very present. Hmm. And I think that is really a shame. And I would like to contribute there also in my home a little bit to a more understanding on virus diseases. So ideally, uh, I would like to stay in science. But yeah, we all know that this probably is, is yeah, a, a dream. But if you do not try it, you, you will never know it. Uh, but in the end, I'm, I'm open to a lot of things. I would wish for myself that it could work until retirement with viruses because they are really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And so in Austria, what is the um, sort of the system to get funding and things like that? So if you want to be a scientist or have a lab in Austria, what is the system that people follow? Yeah, so we have a couple of research institutes for fundamental science and they have their funding from the Austrian Academy of Sciences and they are funded by taxpayers' money, let's put it like this. And we also have the FWF, which is, I think, very similar to the NIH, where you can get just apply for funding. So you have a certain amount of money where you can apply for funding for all um, groups of sciences. And yeah, that's that's basically it. So the science funding is not too big. And of course, in, you also have the chances through the um, European Council to get some money through the European Union. But yeah, it's, it's really tough. And I'm not sure how the science money in Austria will develop or how our government will fund sciences, especially now after all of the depths what we have now since the corona pandemic. Just hope that in general, politicians do not forget that you need fundamental science in order to have a well-running society, because I think this pandemic really showed how important science, and especially fundamental science and academia is, to fight uh, this pandemic, especially in Austria, most of, of all of the PCR tests in the beginning, the sequencing, everything was run by academic labs. Hmm. And I think that should be a bit more appreciated. Yeah, yeah. And how is Austria doing now um, with, uh, with the pandemic? I think overall they handled it relatively good. One of the problems what we have, and I think the, it, it's not true for all the European countries, but for us, we have a very high rate of people who do not want to get vaccinated, either out of fear mm. or they're 
just anti-vaxxers. And I think our vaccination rate currently is at 64%. And it's very complicated to, to, to push up these numbers. And I think also no one really has an, an idea. So I help a lot with educating my friends if they have problems or if they have concerns regarding the vaccine. But yeah, they're also, my hands are a little bound and convincing an anti-vaxxer, I think, to get vaccinated is, is pretty pointless. They, they are just too indoctrinated with not getting the vaccine or any vaccine at all. And you have to respect it too. Yeah, I think we have the same challenge here. Sort of, I mean, there's different um, uh, groups in a way of people. And so I, I think you have to really tailor your messaging and your outreach and your potential, you know, solutions or, or um, what you're offering to, you know, very specifically in a way. And so that's always challenging. We always like to sort of have a one one case fits all kind of strategy, but that's clearly not working, I think. Um, and so, you know, we, we have similar problems. We're, you know, at some point, you know, you will have to figure, there's a science in this too. And so I do believe that there are solutions. We just have to figure out what they are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to say, I mean, I have to say in Austria, they're also quite adventurous. So for example, they provided a lot of vaccinations in churches. Mm. So you just can go on Sunday to, to the mass. And then after the mass, there's just a bus standing in front of the church and, and is vaccinating people. And I think that worked actually quite good, especially in, in the rural regions. Mm -hmm. And you also have this big discrepancy between, I would say, the big city and the rural regions. Is it? Uh, and it's not only because it's harder to reach them with the vaccines, but I think it's also... Edu maybe an education level because you just don't reach them that easily yeah 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 and you sometimes wonder if there's also a general mm, distrust of the central government we have that here in, in yeah. america as well too so there's it's sort of like how do you reach people in a way that is non-governmental non-political and are just sort of directly able to speak to their needs as people it, it's difficult yeah it's yeah. it's very difficult and also very emotional yeah yeah and, and, and that makes it very hard to also discuss with people because right. i don't want to offend something right. and i think as a scientist we are very happy to have heavy discussions and we are okay with agree to disagree right 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 and sometimes the discussions what, what a scientist has is not always relatable for other people because they want to bring you on their side of opinion. Right, right. It's, it's not so easy for them to agree to disagree. Yeah, 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 I agree. <laughs> um, so what has this past year and a half been like for you? I guess talking a little bit about the pandemic, um, did, you, did you have to go through sort of a shutdown in your lab or what, what happened? Yeah, so I started in, in the lab of Debbie on the 1st of March in 2020. <laughs> and yeah, I went to a defense in Belgium that was in the second week of, of, of March. And on the day when I returned, I entered the lab 
and everyone was sitting in a circle and we were saying yeah um, we're in a lockdown now and we were all so sure that probably in a month or two everything will be better little did we know yeah so but for me it was relatively soon we started up with all of the diagnostic work mm. but back then i was living still in utrecht and that's around i think 60 kilometers to rotterdam but it's very easy connected with, with the train. So it takes, it took me like one hour, 10 minutes. And in the beginning, beginning they said, yeah, I, I still can come and help with the diagnostics. And then they said, yeah, maybe it's better if I don't commute. And in the middle of the lockdown, I also then moved to Rotterdam and then it was easier for me to again, go to the lab and, and help stuff. And yeah, I think we were, on, in lockdown until the mid-May or something like this, so May-June, and then slowly but surely we were coming back, and in the beginning it was only SARS-CoV-2 related research, and then uh, at a later point around August we also could start up other research again. And then during the second, even though we had a second lockdown in the country, but our lab actually never went into a second lockdown. We were just making making sure that if you have to do lab work, you can go to lab, but work from home as, as much as possible. Right, right. Yeah, we've done something similar, I think, from the get-go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it is very weird. I mean, uh, I started now one and a half years ago, and I still don't know everyone, because not everyone, especially the bioinformatics people, mm. they're still not coming every day to the lab. So, and we, the, the virus science department at the Rasmus Medical Center, we are a lot of people. So still don't know every, everyone and that uh, is a little bit awkward, let's put it like yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have the same thing. So, you know, people that uh, you should know, but you don't actually <laughs> in person. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for talking with us today. I, we appreciate yeah. Uh, hearing about your research and uh, good luck on your organoid systems. And we hope to hear uh, some interesting stories from you. Yeah, I hope so too. This Thank you very much. It was very lovely talking to you. podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.